You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and hi, everyone. As we await the outcome of the presidential race, welcome to The Exchange. Crucial swing states, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Georgia, all yet to be called. The races are so down to the wire that we're getting new vote count updates nearly every hour at this point. Right now, the electoral votes stand at Joe Biden, 253, President Trump, 214. Markets are taking a breather today. We're lower, but not by much, about a tenth of a percent across the board. And this is coming after a monster week. The Dow's up nearly 7%. Same for the S&P. The Nasdaq up nearly 9%. And it's been a broad-based rally. Yes, tech, but also materials and healthcare up 8%. Even this year's laggards, energy and financials higher on the week. And as we mentioned, all of these gains come as uncertainty remains over the future of Washington. That's where we begin this hour with Eamon Javers crunching all the latest numbers for us. Eamon? Yeah, Kelly, one thing to update you on is we're expecting now a press conference from Clark County, Nevada uh, at the top of this hour. So any moment now, we should get some word from officials there. They've been updating their vote throughout the course of the day as well. So let's take a look at where we stand in the states that have not been called by NBC News's decision desk so far. And what you see overall is the president uh, is falling behind in a number of these battleground states. In Pennsylvania, you see Joe Biden ahead uh, with a lead of more than 12,000 votes now as they continue to count in Philadelphia and Philadelphia uh, surrounding suburbs. That's a Biden-heavy area in Georgia. Look at that narrow vote there, 1,560 vote edge for Joe Biden. That is going to be very tough. Uh, Arizona, you see the pres- uh, vice president, former vice president ahead uh, by 43,000 in Nevada. Uh, the v- former vice president ahead by 20 plus thousand. Uh, North Carolina and Alaska, that's where you see uh, the president uh, has sizable margins there as well. So take a look at Nevada right now, because that's where we're going to have this uh, press conference coming up shortly. And you can see uh, that Nevada is a state uh, where, you know, in Clark County and around the around the rest of the state, uh, there has been some movement throughout the day. That 20,000 uh, vote margin, though, holding up as of right now for Joe Biden. Uh, and if you look at Arizona, We've also I think we've got a full screen here of the state of Arizona. There's Nevada. And you can see that difference of 20 uh, plus thousand, 49.8 for Biden, 48.1 for Trump. And there you see Arizona, 50 percent on the nose for Biden in Arizona, 48.6 and a difference of 43,000 votes uh, in the state of Arizona. And in Georgia, you know, the secretary of state says there will be a recount in that state. So that is something that we're going to have to watch for as well. And there's that narrow, narrow margin of just over uh, 1,500 votes, 99 percent of the vote in in the state of Georgia. Interesting to watch and see uh, if military ballots continue to come in from overseas, uh, if that affects a a margin that is that narrow, those military ballots, you would expect, based on political science and history, those ballots might lean uh, for Trump. But we're going to have to wait to see how many of them actually come in uh, and who those folks voted for as well, Kelly. So we're waiting for all of that. Meanwhile, the guidance that we're getting out of the Biden campaign uh, is that the former vice president may speak as early as tonight, possibly in prime time. Uh, I am told uh, by officials not to expect uh, the former vice president to speak during the day today necessarily. They're going to wait uh, and see how things go. And even if there are calls coming in throughout the day, we can expect Biden to wait until tonight. All that sort of tentative right now, uh, given the tentative nature of everything that's going on in the country. But that's a sense of where we're headed here. Uh, Uh, as the Biden camp looks very carefully at these numbers coming in in Pennsylvania, because if he wins there, uh, that's the whole ballgame, Kelly.
Yeah, Eamon, it's the kind of day where people keep saying, have they called it yet? Have they called it yet? You know, that's how close it feels to the finish line. But I wonder, is it possible that we could actually be be sort of have this feeling for several days as this really plays out that it's, you know, it, it feels imminent and yet it's not? Yeah, look, officials in Philadelphia just held a press conference in which they said, you know, there could be counting going on for days in Philadelphia. They've got provisional ballots. They've got other other things that they've got to work their way through there. They could be done with the bulk of it, but then there could be the, the tricky ones where they have to go through and authenticate all those uh, all those particular ballots. That could take days. Now, the question is uh, whether the uh, NBC News decision desk uh, will feel like it's got enough uh, data at, at that point uh, to make a call there in the state of Pennsylvania. So far, no call from NBC News on that and these other states that are still hanging in the balance. And remember, these network calls are projections that the networks make based on their analysis of the data. They don't have legal binding. All the, the legal binding comes from the Electoral College when the they Electoral don't? College votes in December. <laughs> so under the Constitution, we have a ways to go. Yes. Well, uh, sometimes they feel uh, like they carry legal weight because I know they're that significant. They do. Uh, Eamon, thank you, sir. We'll check back in soon. Eamon Jabbers with the latest for us. Let's go to that state that could decide the presidency. Former Vice President Joe Biden has taken the lead over President Trump in Pennsylvania. And that's where we find our Frank Holland. He's in Philly with the very latest. Frank. Hey there, Kelly. The counting of mail-in ballots received by Election Day continues right over here at the Philadelphia Convention Center. The counting is going on right behind those walls. And as that count continues, Joe Biden's lead, it just continues to grow here in the Keystone State. It's really a sharp reversal. At one point, President Donald Trump, he had a two-point, a double-digit lead here in, in Pennsylvania. Now Joe Biden has a lead of about 12,000 votes. Let's take a look at the, the count of mail-in ballots received by Election Day here in Philly. So far, 94% of those have been counted. 23,000 are left to count. That does not count provisional and mail-in ballots. I actually emailed with the state earlier. They said they're going to gather all that information from every county and release those numbers sometime next week. Now, I know I keep saying mail-in ballots received by Election Day. It's a bit tedious, but it's important. I'll get to that distinction in a minute. 80% of Philadelphia's votes have go to Joe Biden so far. That trend is largely expected to continue, which would only grow his lead here in the Keystone State. Now looking at the counties around Philadelphia, in the four counties around Philadelphia, Joe Biden's gotten 55% or more of the votes in all of those counties. You can see there's still thousands of mail-in ballots received by Election Day left to count there. The president, he actually discouraged his supporters from mail-in voting, pushing for them to vote in person. So it would just be logical to think Biden would get half or more of these votes either maintaining or growing his lead here in Pennsylvania. Statewide, 95% of mail-in ballots received by Election Day, they have been counted. Now 123,000 left to count, just under 124,000. The Secretary of State has estimated that count will wrap up sometime today. Now you might see behind me or hear behind me, there's what appears to be a demonstration or a dance party. That's a lot, the majority of Biden supporters celebrating his victory, but there's a whole lot more counting left to do. So as I mentioned, first, All the mail-in ballots received by Election Day, they need to be counted today. Despite all this partying, there's still a lot more counting to do. Then after that, the state will count ballots received between 8 p.m. on Election Day when the polls closed and 5 p.m. today, which is allowed under state law. Those ballots that were received after Election Day, they are kept completely separately and counted only after all the votes that were received by Election Day are counted. So, as Ammon mentioned, the officials here in the city of Philadelphia say it may take days more to count. Uh, You would imagine it's a similar situation for other counties all around the state. Uh, While our news organizations, they they may call this state, the counting will continue. Kelly, back over to you. 
All right. And it'll go till it's all official. Frank, thank you very much. Some important updates there on what to expect in Pennsylvania. Our Frank Holland. Turning to the market, stocks are pairing some of their earlier losses. The Dow is down as much as 200 points. We're down 72 at the moment. And the Nasdaq has gone positive. All three major averages are still on pace for their best week since April. Of course, as follows their worst week since March. Let's check in with Bob Bassani for more on today's action. How, is, how are things shaping, shaping up today, Bob? Well, four big updates in a pause, but it's been a remarkable week. Volume is lower today, uh, but given the volumes we had all during the week, that's perhaps understandable. Just take a look at the S&P 500. Remember, we've moved 7% this week, and at one point we were 2% from the old historic highs. That was 35.80. That was back on September 2nd. 2% from historic highs, folks, essentially. It's a remarkable move to the upside. If you look at the Dow leadership today, it's mostly defensive, kind of a flattish day, but Pfizer, Walmart, Procter & Gamble, Coke, those are defensive stocks. Uh, United Health taking a pause. But remember, United Health, these healthcare stocks, they're up double digits. United Health's up about 14% this week, so no surprise, a little bit of a pause here. Uh, I call this uh, everybody in the pool week uh, because everything won this week. You really can't make an argument that anybody lost in a dramatic way. Large caps like the S&P were up up dramatically 7%. The small caps were up 7%. Defensive stocks like healthcare were up 8%. Growth stocks like tech were up 8 or 9%. Even transports were up 5 or 6% uh, on the week. That's everybody. And it's a global rally. I want to point that out here. Besides the S&P, Europe, the stock 600, uh, best week since June, up 7%. Or Asia had a best week since April. The Nikkei closed at the highest level since 1981, folks excuse me, 1991 today here. So we've got a global rally here, partly based on some changes in trade ideology, uh, perhaps. But the market's all moving to the upside. And you can't blame them for being optimistic. Besides, no major tax hikes if the GOP takes control of the Senate, keeps control of the Senate. We've also got the vaccine coming. And we've also got the Fed that's still out there. And we've got stimulus potentially coming as well. It's kind of like a Goldilocks economy for the stock market. Guys, back to you. Wouldn't that be nice? Bob, thank you, sir. Bob Pisani with our latest. Okay. Now, while election uncertainty is causing some market jitters today, legendary value investor Bill Miller is sticking with his strategy and continuing to bet on a bull market. His flagship Miller Opportunity Trust Fund is up 110% since the low on March 23rd. That's more than doubling the S&P's 50% rebound during the same time. Joining me now with his insights on stocks, the election, and more is Bill Miller. He is the chairman and chief investment officer of Miller Value Partners. Bill, I want to thank you again uh, for joining us back in March. And I'm sure our viewers remember that, you know, the same day that Bill Ackman was on here talking about hell is coming, you said it was a once in a generation buying opportunity. Is, is it a tougher call today? Well, yeah, it's a much tougher call today because prices are very different from what they were back in, you know, back in March. That's what made it so, uh, so uniquely um, uh, timely to make sure that people got invested. Right now, the market is uh, it's still a bull market. I mean, I, I think that's one of the messages of the election, the extremes uh, were, were kind of paired off. You know, we, we've got, we got, we're apparently going to have uh, Mr. Biden, who's a, a much more, um, let's just say, calm person and uh, uh, less confrontational than, than President Trump. And, but most of the policies that people in the markets are worried about are probably not going not gonna to happen. I think one of the risks in the market will be, um, and I don't expect this to actually happen because I, I, I know that uh, Vice President Biden and Mitch McConnell have known each other for, you know, for decades and, and get along pretty well. So I, I think that there's a good chance for kind of a centrist uh, set of policies with modest tax increases, and, if any, and then uh, and fiscal stimulus that is not, the, is not as, uh, I'd say, as excessive as, as has been talked about. 
But overall, overall, I think that I think that the market's telling you that that the bull market is continuing, and it's it's a bull market that began on a secular basis back in March of '09, and it continues, and it can have corrections, and it can have setbacks. But until you until the the basic building blocks of any bull market change, um, you're in a bull market, and those you know those building blocks are the economy growing, uh, the Fed accommodative, interest rates not uh, not excessive, uh, and inflation quiescent, and we have we have all of those things. So I, I think that that's the, those yeah. are the four key things you have to look at. So let's go over some of the names in this portfolio that have gotten you uh, returns doubling from the lows, doubling what the S&P has done. Uh, it's some familiar names like Amazon, Alibaba, and Facebook, and Alphabet. Uh, but I know that you're not as bullish on big tech as you are maybe the more value parts of the market. And, and other holdings that you have include ADT, Stitch Fix, uh, One Main, Taylor Morrison Home. So, you know, it, it's not like you're saying, you know, throw out big tech, but are you one of the people who thinks that the long, long awaited and overdue kind of shift to value is here, especially because we started to see this pause when it looked like the blue wave wasn't coming. So is that just a, a temporary setback? I, I think the bull market is going gonna, is gonna to be good for growth and for, uh, and for traditional, traditional value. But I do think that the the traditional value names will, will move into the ascendancy here, uh, and that's what we're. That's what you know. We saw a reversal of some of the, some of the selling that had taken place in tech. The two corrections that we had in the, in the mega cap names, and overall the, the other names did did quite well. Um, and then that got reversed out because of the expectation that that uh, Mr. Biden is going to win, but the Republicans going to keep the, going to keep the Senate. And I think it's going to be much more balanced going forward. But I think the advantage will be to, to value because I do believe that the Fed. It's going to take the Fed a while. But they're going to they will if they if they stay the course, they will be able to get inflation to two percent. And that's it's going to go higher if they do that, because they want it to be symmetrical around two. So they're going to have to let it get to get to three or so. That means greater pricing power for the value names. And, and obviously that means greater growth and because, you know, both sides of the economy growing. And so growth won't be so scarce as it is. And so the great growth names, which are still going to do fine, I think, but they're not going to do as well relative to the market as they have done. But we own both. We own we have factor diversification, so we've got the, the the big tech, and we got small names, and we got you know companies. You mentioned Taylor Morrison. That people say they can't find a cheap stock. Taylor Morrison's got you know six times next year's earnings, and it's a home builder, and home building is on you know, it was on fire. Tev is one of our favorite names. Traded three point four times earnings. So there's there's sixty percent of the stocks in the S and P last time I checked were down uh, this year. So there's a lot there's a lot to buy out there. And I'm also interested that you say, uh, to, to quote your line here, that gold should provide solid returns in Bitcoin, perhaps stellar ones. Now, I know you've been a, a believer in Bitcoin for a while here, but it's been impressive to look at its performance over the past month. Is that an, an aberration? Um, why does Bitcoin just trade like a high beta stock? And, you know, what would your explanation be for people as to why they'd want to be in these couple of areas? You know, um, some of the great investors of, of, of our time, Stan Druckenmiller, Paul Tudor Jones, are, are, are gold bulls. And, and many people are, if they're not gold bulls, they at least believe that, um, that inflation is, is, it's possible inflation comes back with the, with the Fed trying to gun the money supply, or actually gunning the money supply here, and with great fiscal stimulus, or more fiscal stimulus. I, I, think, that, I think it's reasonable to own gold. Um, gold's done very well this year. I think silver's a better bet than gold. It's a higher beta version of gold. And the gold-silver ratio would tell you you want to own silver. But I, I think, you know, with respect to Bitcoin, um, I, I just make a little emendation to what you said, Kelly, which is that, 
it's, it's been a great month for Bitcoin, but it's also been a great uh, year, year to date, three years, five years and 10 years. And then inception, Bitcoin's inception was 12 years ago. And it's been the single best performing asset category in every one of those periods. So I, I, not that it not that it hasn't had a, a bad time, but it went from you know nearly twenty thousand down to down to in the four thousand three to four thousand dollar range. So it's been very volatile. But I think right now that it's it's kind of it's it's staying power uh, gets gets better every day. I think the risks in, of Bitcoin going to zero are are much much lower than they they've ever been before. And uh, and you're getting you're getting greater adoption. I mean you know uh, MicroStrategy put half their cash four hundred million dollars into Bitcoin. Uh, uh, PayPal announced that they're going to make Bitcoin. People can buy their buy Bitcoin, and and you can use it. You can use it at all their at all their vendors. Uh, Square had a you know had a blowout uh, numbers yesterday. You know due to their due to their the sales and, and the demand for Bitcoin, and the Bitcoin story uh, is is very easy, which is that it's it's supply demand. It's economics. You know not not one oh one point oh one, which is that uh, you know it, the Bitcoin's supply is growing around two and a half percent a year. And the demand is growing faster than that, and it's a fixed. And there's going to be a fixed number of them. So I think every major bank, every major investment bank, every every major high net worth uh, uh, firm is going to eventually have some exposure to Bitcoin or what's like it, which is gold or or some some kind of commodities. I did see a thing that the uh, uh, the chief investment officer of, of Brown University, you know, endowments uh, are, are tend to tend to move slowly out there. I'm on the investment committee at, at, at Johns Hopkins, and it's you know we have a, we have a, a great CIO, but we don't own any Bitcoin, and we may never own Bitcoin. But what what she said was that she thought that because of its asymmetric properties, that that everybody is going to want to own uh, at least some Bitcoin. So I think that that's you know for mm -hmm. a, for a college endowment, that's that's a bold statement. Well, and it signals that if they go first and everybody follows, you can see uh, why investors would be salivating at that prospect. Bill, um, it, it's a good thing you're a stock picker <laughs> because when we've talked about the bond market, you know, I think you, us and many, many people for years have said, you know, how can interest rates keep falling and you'd rather be on the other side of the trade? Um, and yet these low rates persist. So given everything that you've said about this kind of Goldilocks scenario that's shaping up for stocks, and I would imagine low interest rates are at least a piece of that, can you just give some context on whether you really expect rates to stay low here? Um, what, you know, what you would say to people who are either betting they're never going to go up or uh, to those who say they've got to go up and they, you know, this, all of this uh, deficit spending, the high debt levels, you know, that we're going to face problems uh, if the Fed kind of gets what it wants here and, and that's all coming to bear. You know, wh what do you make of, uh, of bond yields where they are today? Uh, it's, it's interesting you bring that up because uh, going into the election, what had been happening was that there'd been a sort of a steady creep upward in the 10 year. And it got to actually, I think the day before the election or so, it got to 91, 90, 91 basis points. And that, for the people that look at charts, that 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 is it was a critical breakpoint uh, that would indicate the curve is going to continue to steepen, and you want to really get overweight financials. And financials have been doing much better as that was happening. Then, when the the uh, the expected blue wave didn't happen, that got quickly reversed, but it only took a day. And uh, last time I checked earlier today, uh, the ten-year was back over 80, 80 basis points. It got in the low seventies, so it was down a chunk today. And that, I think, is, is interesting because that indicates, I think, that growth will pick up and, uh, and also that the, while the Fed's going to keep rates pinned at, at, uh, at zero at the short end, that the long end of the curve is going is to tend to uh, gradually 
rise. And that's very, very good for stocks. The, the only time that, that money went out of bond funds and into actively managed equity funds and not, not index funds was in 2013 during the so-called taper tantrum when Chairman Bernanke made a comment that rates won't stay this low forever. They were about, I think, about 150 or 160 at the time on the 10-year. And, uh, and they went to 325 in about five months and then peaked and came, came back down. And and that was you know that was the first the only only time in the in this bull market when uh, when uh, money's gone into actively managed stock funds, and because people were losing money in bonds and and of course bonds are you want bonds to protect you from losses not to generate losses, so if this happens on the curve I think the curve could go easily to, you know the ten year could go easily to one fifty or two, without any significant harm to the equity market. In fact, I, I think it would tend to help the equity market. And uh, but I, I do think that that would signal that that you're actually that this, you know, what were bond yields peaked in, in October, November of 1981. You know, so we're you know, mm -hmm. we're about 40 years into this into the bond bull market. And um, and again, I've 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 haven't found bonds attractive for for at least the last five to seven, eight years. And that's been that's been wrong because they've, they've worked very well. But I, I still think that the uh, I think that back then the risk reward wasn't great on it, even though it worked out. And uh, I think now that. Uh, that the advantage is to, uh, is to stocks. Yeah, it well, and if you're right about that, obviously it would, it would benefit the financials. Bill, I, I get one more question, so I'm trying to make it a good one. And I, I think what I would like to open it to you to just say, you know, you're often looking at some of these under-the-radar plays, maybe things happening in biotech or different parts of the economy. Um, can you kind of leave people with one investment recommendation um, that you're most excited about right now? Well, if there was only one, uh, I, I wouldn't own all the stuff that I own. I'd only own that one. But I, I would say, I would say, if people don't have exposure, <laughs> I, I'd say if people don't have exposure to Bitcoin. I would, I would strongly recommend that at current prices that that, that they do that for a stock. Uh, you know, I mentioned it earlier, but I'll just tell you why. So I think I think Teva Pharmaceuticals, the largest generic drug company in the world, generic drugs are are part of the solution to healthcare, not not part of the problem. And Teva trades at three, 3.4 times this year's earnings and a 20% free cash flow yield. And it does it for basically one reason, because of opioid liability. And they undoubtedly have that, that product liability. But, um, but Teva has expressed confidence. The CEO of Endo Pharmaceuticals, another one, has expressed confidence that there will be a settlement. And the history of these product liability things has been that, um, that the estimated liabilities, which come out of what, what the plaintiffs are asking for, and then analysts, you know, take a look at that and use that as the outer limits, uh, although not impossible limits. But it's almost always the case that they're dramatically lower than that. And we believe that even if the high end of the estimate for Teva is right, which is $5 billion, I'd be surprised if it's, if it's greater than $1 billion. That's six months' worth of cash flow. And if I'm right, or and it is what, the, what the CEOs of those companies are saying, that they think there's going to be a settlement in the next 12 months, then without these liabilities, I think Teva would trade, you know, 25 to 30 bucks, and it's right now about eight and a half. Exactly. Yep, showing on the screen right now about 3% uh, on your remarks and trading around $9. Bill, I always appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much for joining us with your update on and kind of post-election and where your thoughts are. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having me on. Bill Miller of Miller Value Partners. Bitcoin and Teva, there you have it. Coming up, the dollar continues to weaken and that is starting to trickle down into other markets. We'll explore, tell you what's going on and driving names like gold, silver and Bitcoin higher. Plus, COVID-19 cases in the U.S. continue to rise across the country. We've got the latest figures and developments. 
And a quick check on markets right now. Stocks are holding steady with slight declines this hour. The Nasdaq went positive about around the start of the show, and the S&P has just gone positive by about a point, too. Dow's down 50. We're back in a couple. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back. Another grim record on the COVID front with daily cases now exceeding 120,000 for the first time. Meg Terrell is here with the very latest this hour. Meg? Hey, Kelly. Well, we're exceeding 120,000 the day after the first time we exceeded 100,000 daily new coronavirus cases. So this is just a pace that is amazing to watch and terrible to watch, frankly. Johns Hopkins reporting that 120,000 case number, along with more than 1,200 deaths reported yesterday in the United States. Now, hospitalizations, of course, also rising. More than 53,000 Americans in the hospital with COVID-19 right now. Now, which states are adding the most cases? Illinois, Texas, and Wisconsin, as well as Florida and Michigan, on a total case number basis. Now, Illinois yesterday reported 9,900 cases. Today, they just updated their numbers. Now they have more than 10,000 new daily cases today. On a per capita basis, um, you can see states like North Dakota and South Dakota really being hit the hardest. North Dakota has more than 2,000 cases per million people in that state. South Dakota, more than 1,500. Iowa and Wisconsin also being hit really hard, Kelly. Um, And this comes as governors in those states, particularly Illinois, uh, with the trajectory they're on, talking about implementing stronger measures, not going so far as to say a statewide stay-at-home order again, but talking about going back to phase two and phase three of their reopening plans. So uh, these trajectories really not what you want to see going into the colder months. Kelly? No, and we were thinking about it this morning. You know, we got the jobs report and it was better than expected in many ways. But when you pair it with the news like this, you just hope that you know, we're not kind of going back down that road where we're losing momentum again. Meg, were there any special factors leading to the surge in cases? And by the way, is it true that President, <laughs> uh, possible President Biden has been spending his time attending COVID meetings while we wait the election results? There was a report that uh, the former vice president uh, had his regular sort of weekly COVID briefing yesterday as he was waiting these results. Um, he's been taking these these weekly meetings and, you know, he has laid out a plan uh, for how to tackle COVID. But at the same time, if he does become president elect, he wouldn't take office until January 20th. So the current national sort of driving of the coronavirus response will continue under President Trump for a few more months. Uh, And there's concern there because there isn't really a national plan, a lot of public health experts say, uh, to try to stop this as the trends keep getting worse. As for what's driving it, it's a lot of things. But epidemiologists saying, really, this is like a forest fire and you take your your foot off the the gas of trying to stop it uh, and it just burns. And that's what we're seeing. Yeah, no, it's it's like we were hoping they were like, oh, well, we counted, you know, a whole bunch of uh, cases at once. It was some sort of catch up. But no, uh, it just appears that that's where we are in, in this pandemic. Meg, thanks so much. As always, Meg Terrell with the latest for us. Coming up, investors are cheering the possibility of divided government creating their favorite scenario, gridlock. But is it really the best outcome for stocks? We'll debate that with the Dow down 43 trying to turn positive on the day. Plus, Bitcoin having a big comeback to hit the highest level since 2018 over the past month or so in particular. It has been surging. 
Bill Miller recommending exposure to Bitcoin just moments ago. We're going to dig a little deeper into what's driving this move still ahead on the exchange. We're back in a couple. Welcome back. Let's get to Sue Herrera for an update on the election. Sue. Thanks so much, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. As counting continues in several key states, including in Pennsylvania, where here you are seeing ballot counters in Allegheny County being sworn in as they prepare for another day of work. Joe Biden is leading in that state, Nevada, Arizona, and even has a small edge in Georgia. Winning just Pennsylvania would give him the electoral votes he needs to top 270. The NBC News count now has him with 253. We're hearing from the Biden campaign. The candidate may address the nation tonight. Anticipating a Biden win, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says she is, quote, officially pleased with the outcome, end quote, and sees one key issue ahead for Congress. Where are the issues that we can find as much common ground as possible? Now, if we're talking to our supporters in the labor movement, jobs. If you're talking about the poorest people, uh, Reverend Barber's uh, Poor People Crusade and all that, jobs. Everything in between. Jobs, jobs, jobs. A four-letter word. Republicans, though, continue to complain they are not able to watch the counting as closely as they would like to. The American people need to have confidence in our elections. Right now, we don't have that because across the country, Democrat officials are shutting down transparency. You are up to date, Kel. I'll see you again in an hour. Back to you. All right, Sue, thank you very much, Sue Herrera. Still ahead, stocks staging a massive rally this week, but it's a different story for the dollar. We'll talk about what's pressuring the greenback next. Also, whether there's a Republican or a Democrat in the White House, well, it may not matter much to the muni market. Either way, it could be a good thing. We will tell you why coming up on The Exchange. Welcome back. The dollar is on track for its worst week since March as pressure on the currency continues to mount. Why? Rick Santelli has more on this for us. Rick? Well, buckle up. I have seven charts here, and I'll give you what I think is the answer. Look at one week of the dollar index. Currently, it's down close to 1.9% this week. If you look at the dollar versus yen, the dollar's at the worst level since March, seven months. The pound versus dollar, pound's at a two-month high. Euro versus dollar, also at a two-month high. Now, let's look at these three charts. This is the dollar on top of one-month chart of emerging market ETF, one-month chart of the S&P versus the dollar, and one month of the DOCS versus the dollar. What do all those charts, especially emerging market, all have in common? Risk on, risk on. We could talk politics, but that's kind of like chasing your tail. The reality is the markets are risk on. They've been risk on all week, and risk on is never good for the dollar index. Kelly, back to you. Rick, that was seven charts. I was bracing for like a much longer thing, but you just flew through that and got right to the point. So it's just because the, the, it's, it's strength, it's economic strength, it's, it's kind of, uh, what do you call well, it, hoping? You know what, I'm not sure about economics. I'm not sure about economic strength. I think that this was a good jobs report un, under the context of which we're dealing with. I think it's the best we can get. And, and with regard to politics, I think it's pretty obvious that we're not going to have a big Democratic stronghold in any part of the government, but it doesn't mean we're going to have the current administration. With regard to the economy, I think it could go either way. But I think it right now, considering what's going on, especially 
that we're probably going to be on the other side of COVID in three or four months, whether it's medicines, therapeutics, whatever it is. And I think all that jumbled together right now is giving investors a thumbs up to dabble in a riskier pool. All right. As long as it's not a thumbs down about deficits and all that, it doesn't feel like that one quite yet. Maybe that's that's the story for next year. Rickster, thank you. We appreciate it. Rick Santelli, we're going to talk more about this right now. For more on these moves we're seeing in the dollar and what's going on in stocks in general, I'm joined by Andres Garcia Amaya. He is the founder and CEO of Zoe Financial. And Mark Smith is financial advisor at UBS. Mark, you've been uh, recommending gold for a while, but was that more of a defensive uh, risk off kind of play? Um, is that because of the dollar's weakness or is, t tell me why you like it and what you make of, of the fact that the, the greenback is sitting at these lows here? Well, I like it. So does every other wealth management investment bank on Wall Street. So uh, there's a reason for this. It's, it's actually multifaceted. One, you just saw this week there was zero uh, percent interest the Fed has in place right now. That's not necessarily like a great, you know, uh, a thing for the U.S. dollar and for our economy that the Fed thinks that we have to remain at zero. Uh, then you have both sides of the House and um, whoever's going to be president is going to have to enact some type of fiscal stimulus. So there's a lot of spending. So with that being the backdrop, gold is, uh, you know, just a great hedge against any possible uh, scenario. And also, unlike Rick, who just spoke, I don't think that everything's going to be good in three to four months. I think that's very wishful thinking. And so does a lot of other people. So that's another reason why the gold's going up. So with all those things at the backdrop, right. we're like neutral on the U.S. dollar and using gold as a hedge. And Andres, we spoke to Bill Miller at the top of the hour, who is uh, keen on, on gold, on Bitcoin. And, and the performance we've seen in a number of these metals is the flip side of the dollar's weakness. Uh, Andres, is the dollar going to keep weakening? And what do you think are the drivers of this move? Is it anything to worry about or is it kind of a reflection of the more positive uh, equity environment we've been in this week, like Rick was saying. Yeah, so there's a couple of drivers for for the dollar. One is uh, interest rate differentials. The other one is inflation differentials, meaning our inflation versus the rest of the world. And then the last one is growth differentials. And with all the the focus on the election, we missed the fact that we had a batch of PMI data come out earlier this uh, week that showed that global growth XUS is actually picking up at a much faster pace than the U.S. That tends to be negative for the dollar. Uh, regardless of who's president or not, the dollar tends to actually react. Um, there's a much stronger relationship with that growth differential. Uh, so I'm not surprised the dollar is weaker when growth outside of the U.S. Uh, seems to be stronger. Andres, what would your advice be to investors then in this environment? Does that mean that they should be you know, buying emerging markets here? Well, first of all, I think everyone should have a diversified portfolio, and, and specifically to the comments on gold, uh, we've ran statistical analysis. Gold is not a great inflation hedge. Uh, people think it is. It's not. There's no statistical significance there at all. What gold is great at is that it zigs when everything else is zagging. It is a diversifier for a portfolio. It is not a great inflation hedge. It's not even a great risk-off uh, hedge. Uh, it, there's, I mean, right now we're risk-on and gold is doing well, right? So there's no... There's no almost like uh, reason or rhyme to gold, which is why it's great to have a sliver of it in your portfolio because it tends to actually diversify the overall portfolio. So I would say, look, if you want uh, international exposure, I think you should always have some because there are going to be years in which international does better than U.S. And like we've seen the last couple of years, yeah. U.S. does better than international. 
Yeah, no, I don't mean to run, but we have some more breaking news. That's just the kind of week we're in. Uh, but <laughs> guys, thank you both for your thoughts today and helping to break down uh, what's going, been going on in the dollar as well. Andres Garcia, Amaya, and Mark Smith on these markets. Let's get to some breaking news on the election front. Eamon Javers with us. What's going on, Eamon? Yeah, Kelly, we've got a new statement now from President Trump through the Trump campaign issued on paper, nothing on camera just yet from the president, but the president signaling his intention to continue the fight here. Here's the key sentence of his uh, statement in which he says that his fight is all about the preserving the integrity of the election system he se uh, itself. He says, we will pursue this process through every aspect of the law to guarantee that the American people have the confidence in our government. I will never give up fighting for you and our nation. So those are fighting words from the president of the United States uh, in terms of the political political and legal situation that he finds himself in as the vote counting continues in a number of these states. And uh, former Vice President Biden seems to be inching closer uh, in a number of the key states that would give him the Electoral College votes to become the next president of the United States. The president has been making uh, baseless accusations of fraud in this election. He has already claimed that he won the election, although the vote counting uh, has continued. And there you see the Electoral College votes. Biden, 253. Trump, 214 right now. Uh, Joe Biden only needs 17 Electoral College votes. It is still too early to call uh, and too close to call uh, a lot of these states. And so we're going to wait and see what the numbers and the data dictate here uh, before we and NBC News are in any position to call the race. Kelly, back over to you. All right, Eamon. Thank you, sir. Eamon Javers. Let's stick with the election in one of those states we were just looking at, Nevada. It's one of the races still too close to call as their vote count continues. Kate Rogers is out in Reno for us with the very latest. Kate? Hey, Kelly. And as Eamon was just mentioning, uh, former Vice President Biden has widened his lead here in the state of Nevada to just about 20,000 votes over President Trump. That's the result of approximately 30,000 ballots that were counted this morning. 92% of the vote is now in statewide. But again, NBC says this race is still too close to call. In the all-important Clark County, 91% of the vote is in. Biden is leading there with 53.6% of the vote. Trump at 44.7. The results there really not surprising. That's home of Las Vegas. It is a Democratic area. And beyond that, a lot of these are mail-in ballots. Results from around the county just reported have trended heavily towards Vice President Biden, just as they have nationwide. In Clark, there are about 63,000 outstanding ballots to be counted and about 60,000 provisional ballots. We expect that process will continue throughout the weekend. The results here in the state are not looking good for President Trump's team, but his team is really doing whatever they can to stay in the race. The campaign has not filed the lawsuit that they said was coming yesterday, alleging that there were 10,000 non-residents who voted in the election but two Republican congressional candidates in the state did file something similar, alleging that 3,000 ballots cast by ineligible individuals. For what it's worth, though, that lawsuit does not ask the court to do anything but stop the county from using automatic technology to perform signature matching on ballot envelopes and to provide more access for election count observers. Now, the totals reported this morning, they were just about 20,000 short, Kelly, of what was expected. The registrar has been taking some heat for the slow pace of counting. He does say that they will be now doing twice daily updates and we will get another update uh, just before 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. local time. We'll keep you posted on anything we hear. Back over to you. You know, Kate, when we spoke to Frank Holland in Philly earlier, there was practically a party breaking out uh, behind him. What's the mood like on the ground in <laughs> Reno? 
yeah, so here in, in Washoe County, really, we talked to the registrar yesterday. She's very proud of her staff. We did ask, you know, you've been taking some heat statewide about the, the process and how it's kind of taking a bit. She said, we want to make sure we get this right. I also talked to a voter who was dropping off her provisional ballot today. She had till 5 p.m. today to do that. And she said she feels like her vote really does count because the counting is still ongoing. So I'd say, you know, there's not quite a, a parade and a, you know, a party breaking out, like you mentioned in Philadelphia, but people are feeling good about the process and about the accuracy of the process going on here, Kelly. Interesting. Kate, thank you so much. Kate Rogers out in Reno for Thanks. us today. Coming up, take a look at this mystery chart. It's up 12% this week. We'll reveal what's driving it higher and whether there's more room to run right after this quick break here on The Exchange. Welcome back. With the presidential election still inching along towards an outcome, let's take a look at the race in the Senate, specifically the Arizona seat. NBC, NBC has called that race for Democrat Mark Kelly. With that, Republicans and Democrats, including the two independents caucusing with them, are locked in a dead heat for control of the Senate body, 48 to 48 seats. Now, would gridlock be good for the multi-trillion dollar muni market? Let's bring in Mark Paris. He's chief investment officer and head of muni strategies for Invesco Fixed Income. Mark, it's good to see you. And, and there was some concern earlier this week that divided government would actually be bad for the muni market, which I think is desperately looking towards more state and local aid. What's your take? Yeah, hi, Kelly. Uh, good to be on with you again. Look, there's no question a blue wave would have been good for the muni market. Um, but, look, we got part of that <laughs> to some degree. Um, the market does like status quo. Clearly, the equity market likes status quo. Uh, there are things that get done at the state and local level that don't have to worry too much about the federal level. The muni market's been up this week. Uh, it's had a good uh, week. Uh, we believe that there's good technicals in the muni market. We believe that stimulus is on the horizon, um, you know, maybe not as big as it would have been in a blue wave, but we think that the muni market is in really good shape, uh, you know, certainly for the next couple of months to end the year and going into 2021 with, um, you know, the way that, that it looks like the election has shaken out. You know, you can be a little bit disappointed. Yeah. Uh, I think a blue wave, we would have got a lot of things, but you don't always get everything. Well, do, would it make a difference? So if the Senate goes Democratic, um, does it make a difference uh, to you in terms of the outcome? Or is it, is it going to have very little practical difference, whether it's technically controlled by Democrats or Republicans? So I know we got the runoff uh, in, in Georgia com coming up. Uh, I think that a stimulus package is going to be passed no matter what. I think the size of the stimulus package may depend on whether you get a Democratic-controlled Congress or not. But we really don't need uh, the, the huge numbers that are being thrown out there. A stimulus package would certainly help states and localities. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But, uh, you know, even if, if we get a smaller package, uh, you know, I think that could be of good help, too. Remember that states and localities can raise taxes. They can cut spending. Uh, they can, you know, take the buoyancy here of, of, of the economy. Uh, we got a good jobs number today. The economy's doing well. So it's, it's no doubt it would certainly be a, a good, more of a positive yeah. for the muni market. But I think the muni market's in good shape, even with a divided government. The final question, Mark, for a state like Illinois, which is among the worst uh, credits out there, they didn't go to the progressive tax. I think they stuck with the flat tax, right? Is that, are they going to get downgraded to junk? What, what would the ramifications of that be? Yeah, we'll have to see about the downgrade. There's still some time uh, there. They can raise the tax. <laughs> they can raise the flat tax. Uh, they can do that. They can 
cut spending. And the important thing about Illinois is to note that they have had absolute active access to the marketplace. They've brought a few long-term deals to the marketplace, and they're using the municipal liquidity facility, too. So they're getting a lot of liquidity from the government. The Fed is keeping rates low. They're borrowing at a little bit more than a penalty, uh, obviously, but they're getting good access to the marketplace. And just by even raising the, the flat tax number up a little bit, they can get a lot of revenue from that, too. We'll have to wait and see for the downgrade. But bonds are trading yeah. cheaper than if they did get downgraded. We actually bought some bonds this week that thought, we thought they were very attractive. Oh, interesting. Okay, make sure people caught that, that you actually thought they got cheaper than they should with that potential yeah. junk uh, status coming. Mark, thank you. Mark Paris from thank, Invesco thank talking us through the muni market. All the uncertainty surrounding the election is also sending Bitcoin surging to levels we haven't seen since Jan of 2018. It's up 45 percent in the past month. It's back above 15,000 today. And despite continued scrutiny from regulators, legendary value investor Bill Miller just told us that he believes Bitcoin is the place to be. I'd say if people don't have exposure to Bitcoin, I would I would strongly recommend that at current prices that, that, that they do that. Kate Rooney is here with a closer look at what's driving this rally. Kate. Hey, Kelly, those big name investors like Bill Miller and Paul Tudor Jones backing Bitcoin are part of what's driving that rally this week. It topped 16,000 today, so big week for Bitcoin. Analysts are pointing to a few other factors as well. First, the election. Bitcoin is seen as a flight to safety, the same way as investors have bet on gold during some macro uncertainty. It also has that same scarcity aspect with a set number in circulation. There's the prospect, of course, of more stimulus post-election and a weaker dollar, making digital currencies a bit more attractive. And the Fed yesterday also keeping rates near zero. Some of these factors, according to Paul Tudor Jones at least, could set the stage for inflation. He says Bitcoin is, quote, the best hedge against that. Analysts tell me his vote of confidence as well as some mainstream companies getting into crypto gave skeptics a bit more cover to invest. MicroStrategies and Square added millions of Bitcoin to their balance sheets this year. Square CEO Jack Dorsey on the call just yesterday calling it the native currency of the Internet. And PayPal also announcing its crypto offering in recent weeks. Finally, guys, COVID has accelerated the digital economy overall, and digital currency could make a bit more sense for investors in this environment. Back to you. Yep, and Bill Miller just said it was a simple... Econ 101 of demand outstripping supply. So pick your reason, uh, but they all like it. Kate, thank you so much. Good to see you, Kate Rooney. That does it for us on the exchange today. Uh, Pot stocks have also been surging this week as several states vote to legalize marijuana. We have some names to buy coming up on Power Lunch. I'll see you there with Tyler Matheson after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.